0: Thought leadership from PwC. 2020 was a record year for SPACs. There were about 248 SPAC IPOs raising just shy of $76 billion. In the first quarter of 2021, we beat that record in three months alone.
1: That's my guest, Mike Bellin, PwC's US IPO co leader. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the first episode of our Facts on SPACs five part mini series. SPACs have been around for a long time, but in the last 24 months, the SPAC market has seen a significant amount of activity and raised a lot of revenue. As more companies consider SPACs as a vehicle for going public, we're kicking off our series on SPACs with a SPAC lifecycle overview. So, let's get started. All right, Mike. Thanks so much for joining me today. And this topic is one I think all of our listeners would have heard of, but maybe the level of knowledge would vary depending on how close they've been to the phenomenon. So let's start out just by level setting and explaining the basics of what a SPAC is. Maybe you can even say what it stands for and what the process entails.
0: Thanks. Thanks for the question, Heather. SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, SPAC, and, and we've seen these in the headlines, um, for the last 24 months or so as an alternative means to take many private companies public. And if you look at the ways that companies consider going public in today's market, we have the traditional IPO path. We have a direct listing, which we've seen a, a rise in direct listings lately and, and the SPAC phenomenon, which, which really took off in, in 2020 and it's continued to take off as we, as we look to the first half of 2021. But a, a SPAC is essentially a vehicle that is formed by experienced investors, oftentimes private equity groups, venture capital groups, and a SPAC really um, looks to go out and and raise capital in the public markets through an IPO that it will use um, to do a deal with a with a target company in the future. Now, the SPAC does not have any operations of itself; it's a what we call sometimes a blank check company. And it has a focus, of vision where they're going to go out and find a company in the technology sector or the healthcare sector or the consumer markets, you name the sector. And based on the private equity, the venture capital, the management team behind the SPAC itself, they use their experience and success with other businesses to go out and raise capital through an IPO. We've seen a lot of these recent SPAC IPOs raise significant amounts of capital, um, I think the average IPO in the SPAC world is probably right around five hundred million dollars. We saw several in excess of a billion dollars and we've seen some smaller ones as as well, but you know, these are vehicles that are raising funds from the public through a IPO process that are gonna be used to put to work to do a deal. When a SPAC does their IPO, they go through the SEC review process. They Once they become public, they're filing a form 10K, 10Q, just like any other public company. They're filing form 8Ks for any significant events that are out there. They're subject to all the normal SEC reporting requirements once their S1 goes effective. When you look at the SPAC IPO market today, um, there's been significant activity again over the last 24-ish months. 2020 was a record year for SPACs there were about 248 SPAC IPOs raising just shy of $76 billion. That was a record year. In the first quarter of 2021, we beat that record in three months alone. 2021 year to date, there's been about 379 SPAC IPOs raising over $100 billion of revenue out there. So there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of SPACs out there with a big bank account looking to go out and do a transaction.
1: All right. So Mike, maybe let me jump in before we get into a little more detail on the SPAC itself because those numbers are crazy. And so I have actually two questions for you. Do you think some of this activity is just reflecting that there's just a lot of money out there looking for places to invest? And so this is a good place to start?
0: Yeah, I think I think when you look at the investors behind the SPACs, They've been very successful in the past in most cases. So there's a lot of confidence that people want to put their money behind these folks to do another successful deal. I think the other catapult for the SPAC market was really the volatile markets of 2020. When COVID hit, there was a need, a demand for capital. The SPAC, which has been a product around the markets for over over a decade, provided that that vehicle for companies. They were were able to go out and raise capital in a tough market because they're just raising a blank check. And you look at the small, mid-sized companies out there that needed capital to either continue operations, to grow operations, to develop their product, their solutions out there. And it was the right vehicle for that. So I I think SPACs have been around for for a long time. I think 2020 was the impetus for the launch of the SPACs, given the market volatility, the need for capital, the uncertainty out there. And there's a lot of successful deals done on the back of that, that SPAC market.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. And you actually answered my second question, which was what led to this now, given uh, that they they did exist before. So that's really helpful. So, all right, so let's go back then to sort of level setting in terms of what happens. So you talked about the amount of money going into these SPACs, but then I think where you were going next was what happens once there is a SPAC, what comes next? It,
0: it, exactly. So, so once a SPAC goes public, they they raise the capital. Like I said, they're focused typically on a particular market, whether it's the tech market, healthcare, consumer products, industrial products, etc. They have a life of 18 to 24 months in most cases, where they have to do a deal in that period of time. Otherwise they return that the money back to the investors out there if no SPAC is no SPAC partner is identified. So once once they raise the capital, they typically Make a short list of companies that fit the vision that they have. It's it's in for certain sector. It's a it's a good growth company. It would make well for the public markets. They go and identify those targets. They maybe do some light diligence, and based on the companies they look at, they typically narrow their search down to one company. Sign a letter of intent, an LOI, with that target company. Once they sign that LOI, typically the spacs do a deeper dig on diligence for the company, financial diligence, operational diligence, legal diligence, you name it, to make sure that they understand a bit more about the company. They can come to the right valuation for the company. The other part that happens before a merger agreement is signed is the SPAC and the SPAC target may try to raise additional funds through what we call a PIPE, a private investment in public equity. That's, in in essence, a commitment of outside investors to provide further capital to the target company upon the close of the business combination. Pipes are very common in SPAC mergers. I would say 90 plus percent of the SPACs that get done today have a pipe attached to them. Um, again, it's just additional capital out there. Once they do their diligence, once they get the pipe commitments, you'll see the SPAC and the target company signing a business combination agreement, you'll hear that referred to as a BCA or a merger agreement out there. And that's typically when there's a press release that you know Target Company X has merged with SPAC Company X or is planning to merge. Once that announcement goes out, that's when the SEC process starts. Typically shortly after the announcement, uh, the SPAC and the Target Company file a joint S-4 or proxy statement um, with all the financial details that you find in a traditional IPO. It'll have financial statements of the target. It'll have financial statements of the SPAC. It'll have an MDNA of the target, MDNA of the SPAC and a lot of information around the business, the growth story, the equity story of the target company. That'll go through a normal SEC review process. So for the first filing, the SEC will take their typical 30 days or so to review that document and come back with questions for the SPAC and the target company around the entirety of the document, the risk factors, the MD&A, the financial statements, the 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 parties will work to respond to those comments, update the document, maybe they have to drop a new quarter in. They'll do that typically, you know, 2 to 4 times with the SEC until the SEC declares the document quote unquote effective. Once that document's effective, the SPAC shareholders will be sent a proxy to vote on the deal being done. Typically there's a a window of 20 days between the mailing of that proxy and the vote of the proxy, the shareholders, assuming they vote for the deal, the business combination will close and, and the target company becomes a public SEC registrant from that point forward. There's a couple of filings shortly thereafter, the super AK, uh, which is really called the registration statement in, in a sense of, of the target company. It has a lot of financial information, a lot of legal information, a lot of that was previously filed. But that'll kick off the the trading of the target company shares on on the public markets. From there on out, the target company is no different from any other public company. They're filing 10Qs, 10Ks. They need to be cognizant about SOX as they go out and uh, and kind of go on their life cycle as a public company.
1: So, Mike, I want to talk about the comparison between this process and the IPO process. But one question, because you mentioned this sort of 18 to 24 months, that the SPAC has to find, you know, to place the money. So does that clock, like, does, does the entire going public have to be completed by then sort of the end of this, this process, or do they just have to uh, indicate who their target is?
0: Yeah, g- good question. Um, in, in most cases, they have to have a target identified and the deal completed. With, with that being said, we've seen several SPACs that get close to the to the end of their 18 to 24 month, go out to their shareholders to vote for an extension on the life of their SPAC. Typically, those are done in three or six month increments that we're going to extend the life of the SPAC for additional three months because we have a target in mind and we just need more time to close the deal, get through the SEC review process, et cetera. But that 18 to 24 months is the timeline to complete a deal. There are, like I said, some ways to, uh, to extend that timeline.
1: Wow. So that was partly why I asked the question, because once you get into this SEC process, I know it's in theory faster than an IPO, but still a lot to get done. Yeah. And maybe that's a good lead into my next question, which is if you were to compare this process and let's think of it from the target company's perspective yep. between a SPAC and an IPO, what are sort of similarities and differences there?
0: Yeah, great question, Heather. And the way I look at it is whether companies are looking at going public through a traditional IPO process, a direct listing process, a SPAC merger process. The journey to get to the end may be different, but that destination is, is the same. It's being public. So, so one of the common similarities amongst any of those routes to go public is doing a public company ready assessment at the outset. It's, it's very important because you'll identify where you sit today as a private company and where you need to be as a public company. You'll identify those gaps. You'll be able to put those gaps and execute along a project plan um, to make sure you're hitting the milestones, your initial filing, your effectiveness, the subsequent SEC reporting. So I think that's the key similarity of any going public being public process. Once once you look at a a SPAC company, you know, it's it's very similar to a traditional IPO. Um, The form is different. You use a proxy or, or form S4 for your SPAC filing. An IPO uses a form S1. The content of both is, is very similar. There'll be risk factors. There'll be a business section that talks about the equity story, the growth of the business. There'll be financial statements under audited under PCOB standards in the back of the book. There'll be a management discussion and analysis. There'll be pro formas and or a cap table. Um, the pro formas will look unique in a SPAC scenario in the sense that you're showing the combination of the SPAC plus the target company. And we've all probably heard about warrants, earnouts, et cetera, in the SPAC world, um, which cause uh, some complexity around the process, but reflecting how those are going to look for the end company under two scenarios, um, very unique to a SPAC transaction. From a relief perspective, a lot of traditional IPOs, I think 90 plus percent of traditional IPOs today, are companies that qualify as an emerging growth company, an EGC. In the SPAC scenario, you still can be an EGC. Most SPACs are EGCs, so you get some relief under the EGC requirements. There's also a lot of companies that are going public with SPACs, um, which are classified as smaller reporting companies or SRCs, where there may be further relief on the number of periods that you need to present in the document. But by and large, the starting point is you're going to need two years of audited balance sheets, two years of income statements. Those all have to be audited under PCOB requirements under either a SPAC merger or an IPO. And in in certain scenarios, you may need that third year, depending on the size of your company if you're not an EGC, depending if the SPAC has already filed a form 10K, you may need another year of uh, of financial statements in the back of the book. In an IPO, you've heard about a roadshow. Once you get the document declared effective by the SEC, the banks, the management team goes out and does a roadshow, to gain interest in, in the stock itself and really identify who wants to buy shares in the company as the ghost public in, in the SPAC, given it's more of a merger between a public company and they've come to evaluation. Um, it's still important for the management team, the SPAC and inv- that SPAC sponsors to have investor meetings, investor meetings with the pipe that I mentioned earlier, making sure that the pipe folks understand the nature of the business, the growth story of the business. Um, the historical results of the business and the future projections of the business. They also, it's very important also to keep that momentum with the public investors to make sure that they vote for the deal. So you'll see a lot of investor meetings taking place in the SPAC world, which are different from a roadshow, but I think the end game is, is fairly similar. The SPAC, once you go through that, that process, they're subject to shareholder approval which you don't have in an IPO scenario. So you may see a SPAC scenario get all the way to the end and the shareholders vote to turn it down. And the SPAC sponsor has to go out and start looking for other targets out there. You don't have that in an IPO scenario out there.
1: So Mike, do you see that often that you get all the way to the vote and then the vote doesn't go through? Or is it more of a, in theory, this could happen. It happens. Rarely. Yeah. I, w- I-
0: to say. Everyone's unique, but I would say in 2020, we probably saw 80 plus percent of the SPAC mergers go through with the vote. 2021, it's been a, I'll say a more challenging environment. There's a lot of deals being done, but there's also a lot of pressure on deals from a valuation perspective um, that we're seeing out there. So I think more recently, there's been some deals that have not gone through. Maybe they couldn't get the pipe commitment that I mentioned earlier. Maybe they got to the shareholder vote and the shareholders turned it down. So we are seeing that 80 plus percent probably come down a little bit. But I think the majority of the deals that we're seeing out there are, are making to the end.
1: Well, but if I'm a CFO thinking about how to go public, that's just another thing to think about if you're planning to go down the SPAC route then.
0: That, that's right. It's, it's an additional approval process that you need to get that's somewhat out of your control.
1: Right. All right. I know you were still running through some of the sort of what you can expect. Uh, So I didn't mean to cut in, but I just thought it was an important question to understand how that vote kind of fit in.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the other similarity slash difference I would say is about sovereigns. Oxley. We get a lot of questions around, you know, if I go public through traditional IPO, when do I need to be SOX compliant? Typically, that's your second 10K. You need to have 404A, which is management's attestation in your document. And if you're in an EGC, you have up to five years where that 404B or the auditor's attestation may be deferred. In, in a SOX environment, given the target company takes on the legal identity of the SPAC itself, if the SPAC has been around for some time and filed a 10K or two 10Ks, that that timeline for adopting SOX may be accelerated. You may have to do it on your first 10K out the door. Um, you may still be able to do on your second 10K. So that's a big difference in terms of preparing readiness and thinking about when do when does a company need to be SOX compliant out there. That that's one thing I think management teams should always be aware of. That's out there.
1: Well, and Mike, it seems like no matter how you're going public. Basically going public versus SPAC is not a quote shortcut. There's still an enormous amount of work. And so if you are a target company here, it really is maybe not from this podcast, but understanding what all of those requirements are and what that's going to look like as a team to, you know, have to um, deal with the being public process. So. That said, I know this market continues to evolve and you talked a little bit about some of the, the trends that we've seen in 2021, but anything else that you would highlight again for the audience in terms of what we're seeing from a sort of SPAC market perspective?
0: Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, I, th- I think there's been a lot of interesting develops in, 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 in 2021. We're seeing more carve-outs or divestitures to a SPAC. In the past, it's been you know, by and large, you have a single entity looking to merge with the SPAC today as, as quality assets for the SPACs are, are getting, uh, more, more competition out there from, from private equity, from traditional IPOs, et cetera. We're seeing corporates look at carving out a business, uh, a division and putting that into a SPAC vehicle. So divesture to SPAC, which brings complexities of its own. We're also seeing the flip side of that kind of roll up or put together transactions where, you're taking two, three, or or maybe even four target companies and rolling them up and combining them together in conjunction with a SPAC merger. That creates a lot of complexities from an accounting reporting. And then once the deal closes, integration perspective, of course. So in both of those ways, the the carve-outs, the the roll-ups, there's a lot of additional complexities that come along with already a complex process. So it's again best to get ahead of that and, and make sure you're getting good counsel from advisors if you're thinking about those routes. The, the other the other item that we're seeing is upseas or, or upspacks, as we call them in the SPAC world. It's a tax structuring alternative out there for a lot of companies that are thinking about um, you know what's the most efficient structure. For current shareholders, current investors, and how can they benefit from certain transactions in the future? So that tax structuring aspect is again brings a lot of inherent complexities to a process, but it brings a lot of benefit to the to the selling shareholders as well, potentially. And then with with all the the warrant issues that we saw in April with the SEC coming out, we're seeing some SPACs go public without warrants. That's a little bit new, and we're continuing to see earnouts uh for both the target side and the sponsor side evolve we're seeing earnouts become you know more prevalent in most deals to make sure that investors um you know are in for the long run and are really looking at the upside of the company as they go forward so earnouts are really attached to a lot of the the, the shares that are issued to both the target and the sponsors in today's world.
1: So then, Mike, you've mentioned here a few accounting issues. And in the series, we're definitely going to delve deeper into these issues. So if I have listeners are thinking, what's he talking about? Don't worry, we'll we'll get into some more detail in, in future episodes. But I do think it'd be helpful to set the stage for sort of the series to talk about some of the sort of most prevalent accounting and reporting considerations that you're seeing, you know, as you're working with these various companies.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and SPACs bring their own unique accounting issues, reporting issues to the table that you may not have in a traditional IPO process. So I'll, I'll hit those high level and, and we can dive into those deeper on future series. But some of those are the accounting acquire determination. In a SPAC merger, you have two legal entities that are coming together. Who is the accounting acquire from a gap perspective? Oftentimes it's very clear that it's a, a reverse recapitalization—just uh, throw out a, a term out there—but in certain cases, it may be very gray. So, making sure that you're putting a lot of effort through identifying the accounting acquire, thats going to drive, you know, valuation work, future accounting reporting work. So that determination is key at the outset, and it'll drive the pro formas that I mentioned earlier. When you're doing a roll-up transaction, identifying who the predecessor is in the deal. If it's just one company, one target company, that target company is usually always the predecessor. If you're acquiring two, three, four target companies, that determination may be a bit more complex. So making sure that you're getting ahead of that. I I mentioned warrants. I mentioned earnouts. I mentioned valuations a few times, but in today's world, there's a lot of complex financial instruments attached to a SPAC and a SPAC merger and making sure that you're getting ahead of the accounting around those is key. The SEC has been focused on those areas. They've been asking a lot of really good questions to practitioners on those areas. So making sure that you're thinking about what financial instruments are part of your deal and what's the appropriate accounting is is key. Transaction costs. Do you capitalize transaction costs like you do in traditional IPO? Do you expense them like you do an M&A transaction? Every deal is unique. Every source of cost is unique. So making sure you're going through that framework is important for companies. Proformas. Proformas in a SPAC merger are fairly unique. You typically have two scenarios, a redemption scenario and a and a no redemption scenario, and making sure you're, you're showing those appropriately, thinking about all the accounting that I just mentioned. Who's the accounting acquirer? What are you doing with earnouts, valuations? That all has to be reflected in the pro formas. So making sure that you're, you're reflecting everything appropriately there. New accounting standards. If you're going public, have you adopted any new accounting standards on the right timeline? There is oftentimes a difference between a private company adoption and a public company adoption. Have you hit the new? Have you hit the timeline appropriately for your company? Uh, Something that has to be assessed at the outset as part of that readiness process that I mentioned. And then, as you said, Heather, any company going public has to go through the SEC review process. So, you know, some of the comments that we're seeing out there from the SEC and in the SPAC world are very similar to the traditional IPO world in that. Non-gaps continue to get a focus from the SEC. Cheap stock has been more of an issue and we're seeing a lot more comments in the SPAC world, just similar to the SEC into the traditional IPO world. Questions on the pro formas, the MDNA. Then also a lot of questions around the merge agreement or the business combination agreement is very common in today's world. So again, that, that preparation, I can't understate that. It's, it's very important for any, any company looking to go public to make sure you're thinking about where you sit today and some of these complex areas you're going to have to navigate in the future.
1: So, Mike, I was thinking about the amount of money you mentioned that's still out there. And I was also thinking about the overwhelming amount of information we just covered in the past you know, 20 minutes or so. And if I was the CFO of a private company and maybe I'm not even thinking about going public, but also knowing maybe I have a great company and there's so much money out there. What advice would you give to either someone who's not even a known target, but maybe could be at some point, or maybe you're very early in the process. Like what advice do you give to those companies? Yeah. Yeah. We
0: we get a lot of reach outs like that. And, and the, the one piece of sage advice that I tell every CFO out there is if you're thinking about going public, regardless of the way you go public, traditional IPO, SPAC, direct listing, or if you're thinking about selling yourself to a, a large corporate, a private equity buyer out there, thinking about where you sit today versus where you want to be as a more mature company and making sure that you're putting that effort and that investment into the organization. So if you do go public in the future, you're ready to go on your terms and your timeline, and there's nothing holding you back. I think that preparation and that honest readiness of where you sit today versus where you need to be is is key for any cfo thinking about any exit in the future
1: i think that's great advice and mike definitely appreciate the overview we have a lot to talk about in the series and my sense is we might need to get you back to, to go into a little more detail on some of these but really appreciate all the insight
0: yeah thanks heather thanks for having me
1: that does it for today join me back here every tuesday and thursday for new podcast episodes if you enjoyed our recent full disclosure episode on StockCom, Jay and Ken will be back on the show next Tuesday for a conversation on the presentation and disclosure requirements for pension obligations and plan assets. So that you never miss an episode, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, register for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com and let's connect on LinkedIn. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is
0: brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved.